0: You're listening to The Sixers Beat with your host, Derek Bodner, right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co.
1: Welcome, everybody. This is Derek, joined by Rich once again on A Sixers Beat, a few and far between. Sixers beat. How you doing, Rich?
0: I'm good, man. Uh, yes, I don't believe we did a podcast during. We didn't. The six years Celtics the series. Worst.
1: I, I, starting off, and you said this before the pod. We we do apologize. And look, this is kind of new to us. This is is my first year. Well, it's been about a little over a year now that I've been covering the team full time. That it's my only job. But it's the first year that either of us have ever covered a playoff run. And I think maybe the – how quick the playoff series moves maybe caught us a little bit off guard. To put it in perspective, and and we won't – um, you know, we won't whine too much. That's not what I mean. But, like, Wednesday, Game 5 happens. Series is over. 11 p.m., we found out that we have to be in Camden, you know, 250 miles away, at 10 a.m. for exit interviews. So that left us – you know, we got back to our hotel at, at you know, a little after midnight. We wrote until, what, like 4 a.m.? And then we left at 4 a.m. to go to exit interviews. And in that time, we got a little sleep in and all that stuff. So we get to exit interviews, 10 a.m., runs until 4 p.m. So at this point, you know, we've been pretty much going for a day and a half, almost two days, with, like, two hours of sleep. And at that point, we just didn't really care about podcasting, to be honest. Um, Had to be My back brain. the next day for even more exit interviews, and we pretty much took a weekend then to recharge. My brain was complete mush. It was unbelievable how bad I smelled uh, li- leaving those. <laughs> I mean, I was not going to say that, Rich, but y- yes, there was all kinds of uh, – we were not at the top of our game. And, and those exit interviews sure did seem like they took forever. But we are here. We are back. We are recharged. We didn't want to do a podcast Monday or Tuesday because knowing our luck – we would have done a podcast and they would have gotten the number one pick in the draft. Only had a 1.1% chance of happening. But if we would have done a podcast, it would have had a near 100% chance of happening. Because that is – then again, now that I'm I'm talking this through, maybe we should have done a podcast just so it could be invalidated and we could be talking about Luka Doncic. But that's why we decided to hold off until Wednesday. But here we are. Here we are. Yeah, I think we –
0: did a lot of really cool stuff, and again, anybody who's listening who subscribes to the Athletic, thank you so much for your support. Uh, and we also, really,
1: anyone who doesn't who's listening and doesn't know, we also have day jobs where we write at the Athletic. Go check it out, definitely. Uh,
0: and I thought we did a lot of cool content. Um, got got to do some some new stuff because of the uh, the business model that that allows us to to write some pretty cool stuff. I think uh, there's a lot of stuff we can do better in terms of the content. At the athletic, and just overall w- I think we w- we probably need to stop neglecting this podcast <laughs> yeah. a little bit uh yeah, so trust me in the uh in the off season, there will be far more frequent podcasts i I gotta say I like the off season just because there's no traveling, which again, we didn't do a ton anyway during the regular season, but for the playoffs, we did. In, in just general late nights of covering a game, in, in a lot of ways, the next couple months we're going to be working just as hard, but the hours are more normal. There's no late nights rewatching game film. I can put in a good day's work, and then I can watch the game that night, or I can go see a movie. Uh, it's 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 just a more normal schedule. I uh, it's funny. Sheil and I bought this thing called Movie Pass in January. Have you heard of it?
1: I have, yes.
0: So it's it's basically this thing where you you pay, I think it was 10 bucks a month, so $120 for the entire year. You can just see go, you can see one movie free per day outside of total independent theaters. It's pretty much anywhere. It's great. So with the Eagles playoff run and then this Sixers playoff run, I am at a grand total of two movies <laughs> since I bought my uh, movie pass after taking in uh, Infinity War over the weekend. This is going to be the same philosophy as when I pay for an open bar. Like, you're damn right I'm getting my money's worth. Uh so I it's it just in general it, it's just an easier schedule. And and hopefully to to bring it back to this podcast. Uh what do you think? Once once a week for the next uh, couple months?
1: Yeah, yeah. And look, trust me, this is not a woe is woe is us podcast. We're very fortunate for what we do. We appreciate what we do. We got to do a better job, and we will. And we apologize for not having a podcast. During the season, we will start doing it more regularly. I know we've probably said that before, but we feel it. Trust me. Trust me. Yep. All right. Let's move on to what you people are actually listening for. A little bit of a retrospective, especially now that we have, you know, a week in between the end of that Boston series. Where did you kind of feel? Because I know we were both confident coming into the series. Go back and listen to our preview podcast. It sounds a little comical <laughs> now. <laughs> Which yes, it does. I will say I'm glad I was on the right side, at least, of the Bucks versus Celtics debate, uh, but I, I, we still undersold the threat of the Celtics quite a bit. Where, where specifically, what game, what moment, did you, did you really feel that series start to slip away?
0: Game two, honestly.
1: Yeah. Game, uh, game three will stick out because of how bad it was and how there's just no way they should have lost that game. But once they lost game two, you really, if you wanted to steal this game or steal this series, from a team that has home court, you needed one of those two in Boston. You really did.
0: Game two, if you remember. The, the first quarter, it looked like, I don't know, a JV team trying to play a varsity with the way Boston was trying to score against the Sixers. Sixers came out, and it was exactly the response that Sixers fans were hoping for in that game. And my God, that, what was it, a 22 nothing run? Whatever the hell it was. Just Too end damn of, many. At the first half, Brett doesn't call a timeout. The transition defense is just non-existent. That, that, that's where they had a chance to steal the game. I, I think you summed it up pretty well in your article yesterday. There are two ways to look at this six-year season coming to a screeching halt that were conflicting, but both were true. On one hand, it was a season that exceeded all of our expectations. Shit, I, I forgot my prediction. I, I thought making the playoffs would have been a hell of an accomplishment. What What did you have as your prediction?
1: 42, and that was a late bump. I think I was at about 39 for most of the uh, most of the late offseason. I might have been in
0: the high 30s. They won 52 games oh.
1: and a playoff round.
0: It, looking at the big picture, that's insane. But on the other hand, and as our last podcast is proof of, it was disappointing how they played in tight spots against an undermanned Celtics team. Although, as we speak, the same team has beat the hell out of LeBron and the Cavs for two games up at uh, TD Garden. But, by the way, if you had to bet, you think they're going to finish off Cleveland?
1: I do. I do. I think it'll get a little bit tougher. I don't expect four or five. But I do think that they are going to be able to win a win this series. I think they steal one of the two in Cleveland and then bring it back and, and probably – I mean, they might end up finishing out in five, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I do. And yeah. I mean, part of that is like a lot of people are looking at this and like, oh, my God, look at what they're doing to LeBron. And I mean, they're beating LeBron, but that Cleveland team is very, very uh, flawed, very flawed. And when the C- playoffs started, I would have had a lot of confidence in the Sixers being able to beat Cleveland. Now, the Raptors series kind of readjusted some of our expectations a bit in, in, in what kind of a quality team Cleveland was. But I think maybe what we're seeing, yeah, Boston's better than we thought. But I think Cleveland is very, very vulnerable too.
0: Yeah, they're, I, I think at the end of last series we were saying, wow, the Sixers are flawed, and that's also true. But when you see a really flawed team outside of the best player in the world, Boston is absolutely taking them apart in the first two games in a way the Sixers were not taken
1: apart. Yeah. Uh, no, the Sixers really, really is. Like a lot of people, and we'll get into this probably, whether it's in this podcast or in the off season about the disparity between the Celtics and the Sixers. And it's certainly even more concerning when they're they're missing two All-Stars. But a lot of those games, man, it's really, you know, four of those five games were a toss-up. The Sixers came down yep. on the wrong side of three of those four. But you look at it and, you know, you go to Kevin Pelton and he has like the QSQ or quality shot something. I forget the exact abbreviation. But it basically measures how many points you could expect from the shots that you got. And it takes in everything from who's taking the shots, you know, what kind of sets derive those shots from, where how close the defenders are, what those shot locations are, all kinds of, of, of aspects, and tries to predict what the expected value of those shots is. And, you know, Kevin's pointed out a bunch that the Sixers got better shots than the Celtics throughout the series. So I went, and every team pretty much has a model like this. And they generally take the same inputs, the same factors that they use to determine, They'll weigh it sometimes differently. I talked to two teams outside of the Sixers in Boston, so not, not including the two teams who were taking part in the series, and both of them had the Sixers winning all five games. <laughs> Based on expected value of the shots, they had the Sixers winning all five games. Now, obviously, you have to make the shots, and Boston made more plays than the Sixers when it mattered, but these games were real close. I do think some of it, you know, a lot of, of, of we'll talk a lot about youth, and sometimes youth isn't maybe the best way to, uh, to uh, phrase what we mean. Inexperience is. And I think their inexperience got them. I think Boston making that conference finals run the previous uh, season did help them, did help guys like Jalen Brown execute where maybe the Sixers with more experience will, will will execute better. And I mean, Jason Tatum just kicked the shit out of him, too. Like, it, there is the real pessimistic way to look at it is if the Sixers drafted Jason Tatum, they'd still be playing basketball right now, which... Is, is is a little bit, um, little disappointing, but we'll move on.
0: It sounds like a hot take, but it's also kind of true. Uh, I mean,
1: it, it would be really hard to dispute that at this point. So,
0: so yeah. So even with Boston, and and by the way, in terms of what you what you were saying with the shots, when I was watching the game last night, and Aaron Baines stroked a three, I, I my first thought was good because <laughs> it felt like that was going to be the only thing i totally saw a scenario where the Cavs win this win this series because aaron baines remembers that he's aaron baines and not uh i don't know richard lewis or somebody um uh, so yeah so even with boston looking like they're, they'll make the finals and by the way joe prunty has to be like what the hell man why are you uh why did i get so much shit uh if, Like you said, if you throw out the two double-digit wins, the Sixers were 0-for-3 in all of the close games. And there are things we can obviously point to. That, uh, that big run at the end of Game 2, the terrible late-game execution in uh, Game 3, Simmons vomiting up that terrible shot. Redick missing the dagger in Game 5. I mean, Game 5 was an awesome game, by the way. Just back and forth and... The Celtics, again, they executed better in the final two minutes. Uh, so so no telling what it, what would have happened in the next round, although it seems like the Sixers would have had a good chance. Uh, but if you're waking up today and you're thinking, man, we blew a shot at the finals, I'm not going to argue with no, you. No, you're that.
1: not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> I,
0: I would amend it to, man, we blew a shot at getting our ass kicked in the finals. But the point still stands.
1: Aaron Baines, seven three-pointers made it 43.8%. Robert Covington, six at 25%. Marco Bellinelli, five at 31%. And Ursan Ilyasova, three. He made three goddamn threes all series at 21%. I mean, it's just. And look, I know a lot of those Aaron Baines threes were as wide open of a corner three as you will ever get. He's still Aaron fucking Baines. Incredible. Yeah. So, so with that in mind,
0: I think everybody's cooled off a little bit. We can kind of combine those two outlooks. This was a great year overall. But there are also a lot of things that need to happen for the Sixers to get to the next level, which basically is going to mean beating Boston. Uh, So whether whether it was an individual or team thing, what what do you think the biggest lesson the Sixers learned from the Boston series was?
1: Isn't isn't that a tough road to hoe, though? Like, you know, if you want to win a championship in the next five years, you've got to go through Boston and Golden State. Just a just just a, a brutal combination.
0: It's tough. It's tough, but can you imagine being a team that is stuck in mediocrity now who would add the Sixers to that list too?
1: Oh yeah. No, the Sixers are, are further ahead than most teams trying to uh trying to clear that path. But it is uh, still work to do. Still work to do, that's for sure. Jesus. Yeah, no. It's
0: Boston and Golden State. Those are those are two legit franchises right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So biggest thing we learned. Um ball handlers matter, Rich. Ball handlers matter. That's the best I can, I can come up with.
0: Yeah, the uh, they finally started running some some regular pick and roll in Game Four with uh, with Ben Simmons, but when your only ball handler can't shoot or is unwilling to shoot at this moment outside of uh, ten feet, it's hard to get easy baskets in the half court against this Boston team. It just is, and it it was for a lot of this year even though we talked about it all the time and there were there were stories written about it Markel Fultz had about for for what a strange and unsatisfying year he had he was basically he was flying under the radar yep and then he gets to the Boston series the Sixers win around and the guy that he was basically that he was traded for including an, another first-round pick, uh, is playing amazing, and he can't get on the floor because TJ McConnell is clearly a better option. <laughs> to and be fair it, to TJ, he was the best option on the team.
1: But it, it really it really does say something when you've invested three likely top five picks at the point guard spot in Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, and the Kings pick in 2019. And your best option at that spot, not all series, because Ben had his moments, but for a good chunk of the series, is undrafted T.J. McConnell. It, it, it's like you need to get more out of those investments. And look, Ben was great this year. He was fantastic. He was better than I expected on both ends of the court. He's a huge building block. I don't want to turn this from a, you know, Ben struggled against the Celtics to Ben doesn't have a role leading this team. That's not what I'm doing at all. But you, yeah. need, you needed more out of Ben Simmons. And I think Boston... You know, a lot of people will say Boston gave the blueprint for how to slow the Sixers down, which there's some truth to that. I buy that. But there aren't very many teams that can execute that blueprint. It's it's very tough to have the, you know, Boston has such incredible uh, attention to detail. And this is where, you know, I think a real good way to judge a coach is how well they get back in transition. And Boston is far and away the best in the league, not even close. Like their attention to detail on that end, the consistency they do it with, like it's not rocket science. I think I think I think Brett Brown mentioned this in in one of his postgame press conferences, because Ben Falk wrote about the uh, wrote about the shell, the transition shell, and somebody read that and asked Brett about it. And he's like, this isn't rocket science. It's consistency. That's the difficult part. And Boston does that more consistent than any other team in the league. That really impacted the Sixers' ability to get early open you know, early open threes in transition and, and off of maybe an unset defense. And then Boston also has one-on-one defenders that A, can match up with the Sixers, which is, again, very tough to do when you're talking about Simmons and Embiid, but they have the the guys to do that. And B, they could run guys off the line, close out under control, and just dare the Sixers shooters to take them off the dribble. And they couldn't. And it really was kind of like the perfect combination. I really don't think there are very many teams that could do that as consistently as Boston did over a five-game stretch. And oh, by the way, the Sixers... Really didn't turn the ball over that much on a series at a whole, but did in really crucial moments. And they just they, the open shots they were able to get, they missed. And part of that is, you know, if you look at the, the three point totals, the Sixers were down from how many they typically average. And I give Boston a lot of credit for that, but the Sixers also just didn't—they flat out didn't make the shots that they did 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 get. So it really is a combination of all these factors. Yeah, Simmons,
0: uh, t- to put it. In context, Simmons is in this weird spot where he played so well down the stretch of the season. Even when JoJo went down, the train kept rolling because of what Ben was able to do, pushing the ball up and down the floor like a madman, finding shooters. And again, a lot of bad teams in there, but it was really impressive for a 21-year-old to take control of the team, and they they didn't lose. He beat LeBron straight up one-on-one. Uh, in a game that LeBron cared about. And his reward for all of that great work, which included a first-round win, he had his flaws completely exposed and shown to the entire basketball world for five games by Brad Stevens in Boston. It, life comes at you fast, man. The uh, and, and by the way, the same thing goes uh, for Embiid and his conditioning, which we can talk about in a little bit. These things are healthy. In the moment watching uh Embiid ca- cough up the turnovers or Simmons taking these wild shots with uh with his right hand. And by the way, it's not just the jumper. I I think everybody focuses on the jumper. There are a lot of things Ben needs to get better at. He uh his off-ball defense needs to get better. He needs to figure out how to finish with his uh left hand. His touch in general around the basket needs to get better. He flat out needs to uh have more of a killer instinct when it comes to taking some of these mismatches. Uh, these things are good for him long-term if he channels them and, uh, and works on them in the off season the right way. It's just, uh, it just sucked at the time he, uh and and I think th- the way to put it is too. Yes. TJ was the best point guard the entire series. If TJ is your best point guard for the entire series, you're not winning a playoff round against boss. No,
1: Boston. no. I do need think that. I do think at least what it showed. You know, a lot of all year, especially when Ben kind of went went nuts at the end of the season. Well, why would you draft another point guard? I think that series really showed why you would draft another point guard. Uh I hate I hate to live why you draft another ball handler, another initiator? Because you saw TJ come in, the offense flowed a little better. TJ was more aggressive, which is is pretty crazy to say. He could get in the paint and and really kick it out and and ball movement just seemed better at times with TJ. You need a guy who can mask some of Ben Simmons' weaknesses. And Ben will never be an elite pick-and-roll player, not without a jump shot at least. He'll never be an elite shooter. You need a guy who, look, when Simmons is going to grab the ball, he's going to push in transition. He's going to get into that middle middle of the floor, get foul line area, kick it out, find a shooter. But when that slows down, when you need a guy who can then attack a a set half-court defense, you need a guy with Markel's skill set who can run a pick-and-roll, create rotations on his own, And really simplify the offense and get open looks. And I think TJ kind of showed you, you know, we talk about Boston showing the blueprint on how to slow down Simmons. I think TJ showed the blueprint for why you need a guy with Markel Fultz's skill set, which it really can't be overstated just how important his development is to this team and to this future and to the ultimate upside that we all hope this core has. Because, man, they have – I mean, they have, they have a lot, right? And we – it's – I don't want to pick on the kid, but at one point we were sitting there, I think a shoot-around of game five, and we're like, man, those free throws look almost normal. And then you stopped yourself, and you're like, Jason Tatum's averaging 24 a night in the playoffs, and we're getting excited because Markel's free throws look kind of normal. They and did it, look kind of normal, though. They did look kind of normal, which is <laughs> exciting, but also kind of shows just how off the rails this season went. Yeah. You need – I have – most frequent question I still get – do you think Marquel is going to end up figuring out? I have no idea. Still, I have no idea whatsoever, and that bugs me out a little bit. I hope he does. He's still immensely talented. You can see what he can do with the ball in his hands. You can see the kind of athleticism and the natural talent he has. He needs that jumper, and uh, I don't know. Yep. I don't. Know. Yep.
0: That's uh, and we play the waiting game this summer. He I uh, thought it was interesting that Brett Brown said that he wants him to play in summer league. Yeah. I. I, we we knew it was a possibility, but for Brett to come out forcefully and say say that. And uh Colangelo basically I think he 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 acknowledged all right, this will this will be a little tougher because of the status of Markel, the number one overall pick playing the, the second year. I, yeah, we'll we'll see. Hopefully hopefully we do get to see him and hopefully uh for the Sixers' sake he uh he is back on the road to being the Markel Folts we saw at Washington. Another uh another takeaway. From the Sixer Series. Confetti, man. <laughs>
1: how do you not? Like, you have one, you literally have one job. One job. And people I always know. get caught up. Well, how are you going to see his feet on the line from 100 feet away? Because the guy was kind of by us. Other corner of the court. Watch the ref, man. Watch where the ref's hands are. If he's pointing down, it's not a three. Like, you've got to know that. You've got to. Un, unacceptable. Well, Well, how about
0: to. <laughs> And and really, we should have done a podcast right after this. Uh, <laughs> actually, we shouldn't have watched overtime. We should have just done uh, a podcast on the confetti. The uh, yeah, how about you just don't hit the confetti? Maybe wait thirty seconds and, and let it go down. I know everybody in Philadelphia would more fondly remember the confetti game if the Sixers had pulled it out in yeah. overtime. Yep. But man, that might have been my favorite moment of the season. Here you are in this intense ass playoff game, Sixer season basically on the line. Bellinelli hits a massive shot, unbelievable shot. I, I know his foot was on the line and that sucked, but still, unbelievable shot to send the game into overtime. And you can't play the game for a few minutes because the uh, confetti guy—well, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I
1: think by to, now, to be honest, they started that game. They restarted that game too soon. There was still confetti falling on the court when they started that game, which you know the odds of stepping on the confetti and slipping are slim. Obviously, still, it it was it was. I just saw Joel Embiid stepping on a piece of confetti, because <laughs> this is what fucking happens in Philadelphia. I just, it, it definitely went through my mind. Definitely.
0: You you know how seriously I take basketball. You're the same way. But if there was ever a, oh yeah, it's just a game moment, that was it right there. You there know, was confetti still hovering in midair. A I lot know. of it. When, when overtime started. And then the uh, the Sixers uh, coughed up the game. Had what, what a, a, a
1: five-point lead in overtime, too. Ugh.
0: I I know, but the shots were still so terrible. Uh and then by the way, can I mention what an outrage it was that there was no confetti after game four? Come <laughs> on. Game ops people,
1: stick to your guns. It's it's like they were celebrating the uh the Celtics win instead of the Sixers.
0: Unbelievable. So uh what what, what do you think? I, I know MB talked a lot about his conditioning in exit interviews. What what do you think he learned from the series?
1: I mean, I think it's probably conditioning. Like I think he felt like he was you know, I think a physical series like that kind of takes its toll. And I think a lot of times we look at, well, you know, J.J. Redick has to be in great shape because he's running around like that. But I think I think banging into Aaron Baines for, you know, 20 minutes a night and then trying to chase Al Horford, I think that probably took some out of him too. So I think he knows, he realizes, like, this is the first year I've ever had where I'm not rehabbing an injury. I got to go out there and, and, and make sure I'm in great shape. I hope he realized that, you know, I – I'm sure he realizes it. Like recognizing a double team isn't something that you, he has to be consciously told he has to do a better job of. But I, I, I honestly, I hope that he realizes to get, he doesn't have to attack every time. I think a lot of these turnovers are self inflicted in the fact that when he picks and chooses to be aggressive, can sometimes backfire on him. So I don't think you would look at this and say, I have to be less aggressive. But I do hope eventually he learns when to be a little more selective. And when he can, you know, realistically handle the double team—that's inevitably inevitably going to come.
0: Yeah, he.
1: Uh, I, I think
0: we also learned that as much as Al, Al Horford got made fun of at the All Star game for his uh, fairly boring style of play, I'm not going to disagree with people on that one. He's really damn good, and he made all of the the winning playoff plays. I. Again, this is hard to uh, to account for because JoJo was playing with a mask that was definitely messing with him. Yep. Throughout the series, he, uh, as somebody who is sold often as the closest thing to the next Elijah one and how graceful he is in the post, he needs to work on his touch around the rim. Man, when he gets posted up, he God, he did he make one jump hook the entire series? Yeah, and. And look, I, I think I, I was happy with his, uh, you know. Wh- while you also say that he doesn't need to force the issue, sometimes I thought he I, he was nailing Horford and, and putting him under the basket for the most part, and then just missing the shot, which is uh, which was frustrating. Conditioning needs to to happen uh, again, though. It's it's the same thing as as Simmons. He earned. With this regular season, he earned the uh, the, le- the free lesson he was taught yep. by the Celtics. And if he comes back, like, and you asked about this question at exit interviews, this is going to be the first off season he has where he's healthy. He couldn't work on conditioning last year, man. Yep. He couldn't work on conditioning any of the years because he was hurt. Uh,
1: and it's always and, damn and lower and body been, injuries. And, too. and they've been lower body injuries, yeah.
0: too. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, if he, uh, you know, if he had a broken wrist or something, he could get on the treadmill. Uh yeah, so this is going to be a big off season for Joe too, but and this is circling back to the our, our main point.
1: How many minutes did Joe play this year? A lot. Like twenty two hundred, something like that. And
0: that would have been more if if it wasn't for a freak injury where yep. Mark Hill's shoulder ran into his face. So for him, again, it was a great year. But at the end he was taught a lesson of, okay, this is what you need to do to get it to the next level
1: yeah i mean there's you you look at ben and there's a lot of you know his the way he's going to improve the most is with that jump shot and there's a lot of question whether that is a likely outcome and you look at markel and the way he's going to improve the most is with that jump shot and there's some unprecedented question over whether or not that's a likely outcome you look at joel and his areas are are pretty low-hanging fruit like he's got to get in better shape and he needs a guard who can create him real easy scoring looks in the half court and off the pick and roll. And I think a lot of times, you know, we talk about Joel maybe attacking too much and and putting himself in spots where, you know, he's three, four, five dribbles and that, that's not a, a real high-value outcome at that point. I think a lot of that is because he knows he has to create a lot. And I think if you get a guy like Markell who can come off the pick and roll and create scoring opportunities for him, easy scoring, you know, pre-made scoring opportunities for Joel, maybe he dials back that aggressiveness a bit and plays a little bit more within himself because he doesn't have to do quite as much to keep this team afloat. So I think those two are things that, you know, certainly if the Sixers want to contend, whether that's Markel Fultz developing or maybe a a guy in Cleveland coming over, Sixers are going to contend. They're going to need another guy who can really create in the half court. And if, if Joel Embiid's going to get better, he's got to get in better shape where he can play 30, 35 minutes a night on a regular basis and not look worn out. And I think those are both two pretty... Not that LeBron or Markel specifically is is pretty likely, but that getting someone of that ilk, someone who can create in half court, is certainly something this team is going to go about trying to do. And, and that
0: the idea of LeBron brings just me up to the the last takeaway ahead. Besides Brad, obviously he got he got beat by Brad Stevens. I think that's fair to say.
1: Mostly uh, in the first two games, I think.
0: Yeah, it, it got better as the series went along. And by the way, Stevens admitted that he was like our our defense got way worse as we yeah. as we went along.
1: I, I think I think what people will complain about in three and four is the rotations, and specifically with Covington. And look, Covington was and we're we're on Covington I, we're we're on Covington Island big time. <laughs> he was dog shit for four out of five games. Like there's his man to man defense. I think one of the things we also learned in this series was um two way wings, man. Well, two way wings. And also, Sixers really need a traditional, not traditional, because you'd like a little more versatility, but a a natural point guard defender. I think if you would have gone back, we would have said before the season, I don't think Simmons can defend point guards full-time. would have said Covington, for as versatile as he is, I think he's going to be in a lot of of mismatches if you ask him to defend point guards full-time. So coming to this conclusion isn't exactly surprising. In fact, I think both of them showed more point guard Equity defensively than we would have expected. But I think tr- asking them to do that game in and game out was really difficult. And I think, I think, it, I, I, I'm not sure they're quite up to that task. I think they're more like, we can switch these guys onto point guards. We can throw them onto point guards for a change of pace, but doing it for 48 minutes a night is, is, is not ideal. So I think team building, you're going to want, and again, this, this is what Markel Fultz was drafted for, so we're not breaking any new ground. But I think there were, you know, I think that was a tough spot for him. That being said, Said Covington was a zero for four out of five games. He didn't. He didn't help you win for four out of five games. Even someone like me, who I think appreciates his off-ball defense a lot, who appreciates his floor spacing a lot, it's hard to deny that. That being said, you know a lot of fans I think wanted the TJ move to happen in game three. I don't think that was realistic considering Covington was probably your best player in game two. Uh, so making that change then was not, like I said, realistic. He, I think Cov or I think Brown did cut back on Covington's minutes in the second half of game three, and obviously the change happened in game four. So I don't think he could have reacted to that much more quickly. I think if I had to say one other thing in the second half of the series that he maybe should have done was maybe backing off of Marco Bellinelli a little quicker than he did. I think that's really one area where you know I'm yeah. not as big of a Justin Anderson fan as I think many of the fans are. But that being said, it was clear that Marco was not going to get the quality of shots he got in previous series.
0: But But that's the point, is that –
1: if the with reason the, Brett Brown the mistakes, lost the series is Mar- is Marco Bellinelli or Justin Anderson, he really right. wasn't the biggest reason. Right?
0: Yeah. It's and and all of the mistakes he made, I thought you know that there is a level of player or roster building culpability in, involved in those. Uh, yeah, and like you said, Coming in was their best player. The one game he played well was game two, and and that's that's sort of what I took away too is that Boston had all of these wings who defended their ass off and guarded that three-point line as well as you could, and then they broke down the Sixers offensively, whether that was Marcus Smart posting up J.J. Redick or literally anybody attacking Bell and <laughs> yeah. God, that first game was unbelievable, uh, them hunting them out. And then Covington was a zero both ways, and, and obviously those guys didn't make the shots uh, the same way. But the Sixers, in theory, they have – Guys in Redick and Bellinelli, and, and I think Redick is the best. He probably was the, the best version of all of these guys and that at least his his offense, when he's not making shots, is valuable because, shit, the Celtics were chasing him like crazy and the gravity he brings. But, yeah, he got attacked on the defensive end. Bellinelli, of course, got attacked on the defensive end. Cove, even if he's playing great defense and we, we think he's still capable of that, you can't have him shoot like this for an entire series. That's that's going to get you beat. So, you know, whether it's in the draft here, and there are some guys, you know, the two, the two Bridges guys in the draft, and obviously in free agency, the Sixers are going to need more players who can hold their own on both sides of the ball.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, you always felt like you were waiting for that. Like, there was a clock on Marco Bellinelli being the Marco Bellinelli we saw. And we kind of hit that in a, in, in a big way. And the reason why I give more leeway to, to guys like Covington shooting through slumps, and not not this one because this was a, a slump of ep- epic pro- proportions, but because the defense is typically something where you at least get some value from him while he's fighting through this. And I think that was largely not the case this series. Like his his defense was as bad as we've probably seen in years. And I think part of that was, like I said, the matchups. I think part of that was the shooting was in his head. And he will always deny that the shooting impacts maybe his focus or the shooting impacts how he executes defensively. And for the most part, I think that's true. Like when he struggled for a large portion of the middle of the season, I thought his defense was still there. That was not the case against Boston. He, you know, he's never, when we talk about Covington being an elite defender, he's not an elite one-on-one defender. Like, I think he uses his length. Well, he needs to really attack the, the angles. And sometimes he can, you know, kind of lean the wrong way because he has to kind of, you know, think those angles through beforehand. But his his value really comes off ball. And he just didn't seem like he was really locked in the way he was. Well, his value comes in versatility and off ball. And he just was never locked in the, the, the outside of game two the same way he typically is. So it will be interesting to see. You know, obviously you need more depth on the wings. You need more legitimate options. Would have been nice if they would have played Justin Anderson a little bit more to see if they had any trust in him as a shooter and as a decision maker. Uh, you didn't really give him a whole lot of minutes in, in, in the season. You kind of, once you got Marco Bellinelli, you were going to live and buy, live and die by Marco Bellinelli. And you live by the Bellinelli, you die by the Bellinelli, and they, they certainly died for much of the series there. But it, it really was a team effort in this regard. Like we, a lot of people focus on Covington. And look, like I said, I, he, he was not good. He did not deserve to be on the court based on the way he played in those five games. Man, Ursan really really didn't give you much. Bellinelli gave you nothing. Redick needs to shoot better than thirty four percent from the floor if he if he's really gonna overcome some of that defense. And like you said, his off ball movement is still really valuable. He's not nearly as culpable as these other guys. But between Covington and Bellinelli and Iliasova, you just it's hard to survive when those guys can't make open shots like that. It was it was a tough series to watch.
0: Yep and uh the Sixers will look towards the draft and free agency. So speaking of free agency, the uh the exit interviews, this was the second day, the non-smelly day. We had showered and slept. Uh I slept like 11 hours after that uh that crazy Thursday. Brian and Brett spoke on uh <clears throat> excuse me, on Friday and the thing that that just blew me away was Free agency—they—they they obviously can't say LeBron James's name.
1: Not calculus, but,
0: Rich. But they—woof—they—they uh, they, they were not hiding what their intentions are. And it's—it's it's so weird in—in in just pro sports in general. There is there are so many aspects, game plans, uh, trades, uh, contract extensions, whatever. The teams operate with a level of secrecy on. They, they they there is a need to keep the those cards close to the vest. The Sixers clearly have determined, and it makes sense that this is not one of those situations, as important as it is. They're in they're in full sell themselves mode. Yeah. They're they're talking about the city, they're talking about the practice facility, they're yeah. talking yeah. about the roster. Th- this is the one situation and and I guess it it caught me by surprise a little bit just because I'm not used to them. Getting in the room with uh, the best basketball player in the world—that they're selling themselves already—and uh, I guess that was uh, that was interesting to see uh, Brett say it's not calculus. <laughs> and uh, if that player that uh, you might be mentioning
1: were <laughs> yeah. really,
0: really good—if if he's really good—that uh, they'd make any fit concerns work out too.
1: So I guess kind of the paint the picture. You know, we're asking about free agents and going after, you know, wh- what kind of player you might be interested in. And Brown's like, you know, when you look at the options, you know, it becomes quite clear who they're interested looks,
0: in. And then he looked at us <laughs> and paused for about a <laughs> second.
1: Well, then, and then he paused and, and Brian Seltzer, bless him, I, I love Brian, tries to ask a very nice follow-up to that. And Brett just stops. He's like, it's true though, right? He's like, I, we don't need to turn this into calculus. It's quite clear. And then to uh, uh, Kyle Newbeck's question, to Kyle Newbeck's uh, credit, he then follows up. He's like, well, you know, you, you have been on the ball. If this guy's really ball dominant, is that something you really worry about? And Brett's like, if this player you're describing, and he pauses and everybody laughs, was great. And he pauses again, whole room laughs. He's like, we'd figure it out. And what really sold it, and you kind of had to be there for this, was some of the facial expressions Brett was making. Like,
0: Great facial expressions. <laughs> he, great. He, he
1: was not being cagey with this at all. He was really telegraphing what the Sixers and look, breaking news, the Sixers are interested in, you know, LeBron James, Paul George, yeah. and Kawhi Leonard. No fucking shit. Like I don't need to go write a report on that. <laughs> yeah. But to your point, this is something where revealing your intentions isn't really like there's no real harm in that. And this is an organization that for years and years and years and years was prided on secrecy. And, and not tipping their hand at all, there's no real consequence to so it. It's not like teams are going to magically create cap space to go compete with the Sixers. Like, there's only a select few. Everybody knows that everybody in the world is interested in LeBron James. Revealing that doesn't really have consequence as long as you, you know, at one point when he, Brett got his follow-up, he's like, you're not, you're not trying to get me fined, are you? Because that's really the only consequence of doing that. But to your point, Brett went on, like, minutes-long... Speeches about how great the city is, how great the fans are, how great their culture is, and that's really the point. I think Brett was trying to say. LeBron James. Here's He's my sales pitch. Practicing for July first. Exactly. Exactly. He
0: uh, hashtag process to progress. It's it's hashtag <laughs> hashtag radio silence to complete transparency on this one issue. Uh,
1: and I will say, if you want to, if you want a salesman, Brett's pr- Brett's a pretty good option. He's a pretty good. He's option. good.
0: I like. Uh, I've listened to a lot of NBA coaches give their uh, give their press availabilities and, and talk. Brett Brett's in the top five of who I'd like to listen to talk. So
1: I, I, I love. I love to know when this happens. What the uh, what the full roster is of the people that the Sixers send out to meet LeBron James in the summer. That will be. That'll be interesting. That'll be interesting. Adam Aaron has to get in that room <laughs> with, with his T-shirt cannon. With the <laughs> kind of. um, we got anything yeah. else? Yeah, I mean, Sixers tenth pick. You had some That's some true. names pop up. Like I, I think w- we all kind of expect. look like, obviously, how about there's...
0: making Elton Brand share the desk with that guy last <laughs> night? Yeah,
1: that was one thing I was really interested to see how they were going to handle. And it would have been great. Yeah, you know, I thought at one point they would keep the Sixers out there, but then maybe if if you know it got past ten and you had to go to the commercial break then maybe that's when you would bring the Celtics guy into it. I didn't think they'd make him sit up there the whole time together. Uh, It was, I mean, it's one of the more awkward. Look, you don't typically see pick protections, and it's getting a lot more common now, but you don't typically see pick protections where it's like, if it goes one, it's going to this team, two and three, it goes to this team. Like, this is a, you know, it it creates some some tension on lottery night. My
0: my guess is that was a one-time thing, even next year when, They'll also theoretically share a desk. I think they're they're probably going to get two desks for them. They uh, first off, how about the two commercial breaks? Uh, thank God the uh, the Sixers weren't their stakes weren't as high because our whole thing used to be just get past the first commercial break, which was after the fourth selection was announced. So you were in the top three. Two commercial breaks. They're I, this is building to the point where in a couple years they're going to announce one pick and then go to commercial. <laughs> after after everyone, um, that was the one thing. There was a I read Zach Lowe's article today about I think it was you know it's one of those he was in the secret room so a, a behind the scenes type of thing. The the guy who was sharing the desk with Elton, so the guy who was publicly you know their, their representative on the desk, he was all pissed off. He said, "I didn't come here to lose uh this or whatever." It's like, dude, you, you showed up with like two percent odds to get uh to get your pick this year. You came there to lose my guy. Uh, so the, uh, yeah. So, you know, the Sixers are, I, I, I think we, we talked about this before the podcast. We're not ready to talk about the draft yet. Uh, there are some intriguing options in terms of the two areas of need that we, uh, we outlined for the last 20 minutes, which would be uh shot creation in the pick and roll and two way wings. So, their uh their last lottery pick for a long time
1: yeah yeah unless uh i guess real quick Unless they get the number one pick next year right so i brought this up on twitter and i think it's it's pretty interesting are you rooting for the kings to lose as many games as possible so you have a chance at the number one pick or to win so that boston doesn't get a, a quality pick next year
0: oh that's interesting uh i think you probably want them to be bad because because of the odds, right? The, the, I mean, it's it's probably not going to matter because the the odds are flattening out next year. Yep. With Adam, I, I don't talk about tanking silver. <sighs> that guy. Right. I mean, like, yeah. No. The, his... So
1: the odds, the the three worst teams, I think, get a fourteen percent chance, and then the fourth worst team gets a twelve point five, and then it's like ten, and then it keeps going down from there, and down pretty quickly after that. So. I think if I had to say, like, what's the optimal spot? I think the Kings finish. And look, I don't think the Kings are going to be in a spot where they're going to finish with the worst record anyway. So I say, are you rooting for the Kings to lose? I'm mostly saying, can you get down to that three, four, fifth worst record range? And in that range, you know, third worst record, you six would have a 14% chance of number one pick, and the Celtics or the if it doesn't, the pick could fall, you know, land anywhere from two, three, four, five, six, seven, anywhere in that range. And again. Fourth worst record, 10.5% chance, or 12%, 12% chance, and it could now fall to eight. So I think that's kind of the range where I would say. Obviously, the Celtics will always have the odds-on chance of getting that pick. But there's so much. I think the poll ended up being 58% want the, won the Celtics to, to win as much as possible. I always go to what has a chance to impact you the most, not what has a chance to impact the team the most. And I think if you want to win the NBA, first of all, not only do you have to get past Boston, but you have to get past Golden State. In order to do that, you need to have a really great team with as many options, as many stars as you can get. And my focus is always, well, how can, how can this rebuild end up to be like historically great? How can, not only can this, how can this be a, a, a contender to get out of the Eastern Conference, how can this be a contender to win the NBA championship, to really be something special and memorable that you're going to remember for a long time? So yeah, there's a you know, even if you get the third worst record, there's an eighty six percent chance that the Celtics get a high a high draft pick. But with the value that the number one pick in the draft can have to a franchise, with how quickly the odds of success drop, you know, from two to three and especially to four, five, six, and seven, I want what has a chance to make the Sixers rebuild special. Uh I'm almost always gonna fall on that side of the argument. I do think that next summer is really the last chance, at least through draft and through the free and f- through free agency. The Sixers have to make an impact move, whether that's the number one pick, whether that's free agency. Like there's a, you know, there's really a, um, there's a little bit of anxiety now that you have to make a move before that time period is up, because your chances of doing that when Simmons gets expensive, when when Charge gets expensive, hopefully one day Markel gets expensive, because that means he. He figured it out, and when you no longer have lottery picks, it's going to get a lot tougher to add that final piece. So I understand the risk of Boston getting another real high draft asset. I understand how bad that would make that Mark Hill-Fultz trade look, but I'm, I just tend to fall on the side of what can make the Sixers specifically special, and that to me is still a, a chance at that number one pick. Also, I just don't think that the 2019 draft is as deep as this current draft is. So risking – let's say if, if, if you know the Kings lose – get the fourth-worst record, end up with the fifth pick. I'm not sure that's going to be guaranteed to be another impact player. So I'm just a whole lot of reasons I'm willing to risk it. But I, I understand why people are concerned about Boston. The
0: more things change, the more they stay the same, and convoluted lottery-rooting interests are, are still here.
1: <laughs> one more still. year, one more year. All right, yeah. I think it's probably a good spot. We'll have a lot more Combine coming up later this week. I'm flying out tomorrow morning we'll have a lot yeah, more baby. to talk about draft season is right around the corner it's never snuck up on me like it has this year and then you got free agency and then summer league so a lot of stuff to come even if the games are no longer being played thank you Rich for jumping on and we will talk to you soon
0: i yeah, see ya. you've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and libertybroadcast.co